The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. While the effects of COVID are still to play out and things are looking pretty fractious, there are some bright lights. Demand for our produce overseas is currently up, and with Aotearoa, a place that might, if we're lucky, become synonymous with careful and healthy management of the pandemic, maybe the world will want more from us as suppliers of high-quality food and beverage made in ways sympathetic to the earth. One amazing local company doing just this is Kono, the whānau-owned Māori food and beverage business. Its CEO, Rachel Tolele, leads an organisation with food, wine and produce brands sold all around the globe. From wines you know, like Tohu, to Annie's fruit bars and your kids' lunchboxes, through to aquaculture. Before this role, Rachel founded and grew Yellow Brick Road, a company selling the best of seafood to top hospitality operators, and was then New Zealand Trade Commissioner in Los Angeles. Today, Rachel is on the Prime Minister's Business Advisory Council, and you might have seen her on one of the conversations in COVID that the PM was running. To talk the journey, what being Fano owned means, and hopes for a better rebuild of the system post-COVID, Rachel joins us now. Tēnā thank you for being here. Kia ora, Simon, thank you for having me. Hey, so um, we're on a Zoom talking to you uh, uh, across the, um, the island. Uh, tell us, what was your path into business and what were you up to before founding Yellow Brick Road? So my path into business, I think I was almost born into it, where my parents have always had their own businesses. So my dad used to have uh, Chelsea Records and Petoni, and then he started a uh, with mum. It's always been with mum. He started a video, um, you know, you know, pre DVDs. He had a video store called Video Easy, and and now he has um, a business called Horizon. So it's, you know, he's always had these um, small businesses that he has set up over the years and they've always been family businesses and we have always been in and around them. So I think lived and breathed them and were almost born into them. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to do when I went to university, I initially thought, you know, medicine was for me and I wanted to be a doctor. I got to university, I was lined up, all ready to go, got to the front of the line and realised in that minute that if, well, two things actually is what I realised. One is that I realised if I did another minute of chemistry, I would probably die on the spot. And the other thing is I realised that I'm not sure I had a 
huge degree of empathy for people when they were sick. And so, you know, <laughs> the, the combo of the two saw me shuffle left into the law line, which my mum was convinced I did so I could, you know, learn to do, learn to how to have a better argument. Um, but it was probably much more in my line of thinking, which was, um, which, you know, at the time I thought, um, well, actually at the time I thought law was about LA law, but, it, but I, what I did think it was, it was a great way to, develop thinking and I really enjoyed the prospects of reading and learning and that sort of I had a voracious appetite for learning at the time but law law was where I went and at the end of my law degree my dad was exporting and he was invited to a number of events with New Zealand Trade and Enterprise and I just kept gate crashing the events I found them really interesting and I think that I had been in three or four years of almost um, understanding what it was to litigate your way out of a grievance through through law, uh, and there's always a place for that. And then I saw him trading his way into a positive space, and that really appealed to me. So after great crashing far too many events, the then manager of the Māori Enterprise team said to me, look, you're here a lot. Did you maybe just want a job? Uh, and I did. <laughs> so I leapt in, and I, and I jumped into the role of team administrator uh, which I'm pretty sure I was awful at. Um, but I joined the Māori Enterprise team and was introduced formally to the world of trade and to and to export. And that was where it started for me. So I actually started with trade and enterprise straight out of university, where, you know, armed with a law degree, thought I knew everything. Turns out I knew almost nothing, but spent the next several years learning and listening and sitting alongside um, some amazing, amazing companies. Uh, yeah, it's been a year in a year in um, Wellington, then Auckland, and then I was shipped off to North America to Los Angeles, where I took up the role as trade commissioner. Wow! And what does a trade commissioner do? What? What? Yeah, what happens in a in an average day? It sounds really interesting. It is interesting. I was really young at the time. I think I was about twenty five. And what's um, fascinating for me now is that. I firmly believe that I got there because I was championed by the CE at the time, who was Fran Wild. And I think a lot about the difference between sponsoring and mentoring and championing. And I much prefer the champion model, which is to say that somebody, you know, when you see a spark of life or potential in somebody and then you put them in a position where they can realistically sink or swim, but you're faith and confidence in them is that they will rise to the top and that you swim. And so Fran has uh, oftentimes in my life, I've um, felt that she's put me in those positions and you do double time to, to, you know, to leap the bar and putting a 25 year old in the position that I was put into in the States was one of those moments. And, and the role really was to work with New Zealand exporters and in this instance, food and um, a little bit of wine, although that was largely handed from the east coast of the of North America, it was to help our New Zealand exporters find a market and a partner for their product. It's a it's an incredibly busy space, as as I'm sure that doesn't escape anyone in the in the US. Um, and when we moved to the states, we were in California. So at the time, it was the world's fourth largest economy. It was amazing, an incredible, incredible place to be. Uh, really optimistic people, people who had a positive view of New Zealand, albeit that they literally had no idea where we were. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, they liked the idea of it. I, I, I'm not entirely sure we've necessarily moved very far from that position, but um, 
we we had a positive place in their mind. We were in a bustling economy. We had a good story to tell and beautiful products to back those up. And so my job was really to find a find a niche for for our food companies. And that must have been an amazing business card to have as a 25-year-old in one of the world's great cities and, and an amazing remit to kind of connect our produce with uh, amazing restaurants and operators there. It really was. I think I think mum was sort of horrified when I said to her, hey, so I've, I've done that. I'm off. I'm going to go and do something else. She's like, what? Um, it really was um, a great privilege to be in the US and to be able to um, propagate the message that New Zealand was a world-class producer of food and beverages, which I wholeheartedly believed, but to be able to tell people that and show people that and create, um, you know, events, promotions, opportunities for people to interact with New Zealand on one of our, you know, our flagship stories or, or, or sectors was a real privilege. And then what led you into um, Yellow Brick Road? So for the years that we were in the States, and it actually ended up being about eight years that we were in the US, we, um, which was longer than we had intended, but a, but a great amount of time to really understand the people we were working with and the place that we, that we were working within. After all of that time, what I had observed is that in New Zealand, we had a community of food producers who were doing double time to catch, harvest, and process beautiful products in very, um, in very sound and considerate ways. It resulted in fantastic produce. And at the other end in the market, we had chefs and retailers who were doing um, a commensurate amount of work to present those to their customers. And in between the two was a lot of time and a lot of risk uh, that that existed that almost served to diminish the integrity of those products, and so I thought after eight or nine years of of helping people, you know, move their products, that I would come back to New Zealand and work in chilled seafood to um, to get that seafood into North American chefs in a very small amount of time to tell the story, to reward all of that really hard work and to, and to really ensure that the product that they were served was as great as it was when it left the water. So that was the, that was the theory and that's the way that the business started. I had met some amazing fishermen who I thought were catching and harvesting in good and responsible ways, beautiful product. Seafood is something that I love and it, it created a, a great platform for my um, continued interaction with American chefs. So that was the start of it. But then what quickly happened is that uh, when I got back to New Zealand um, and started thinking about the idea of this business, I discussed it with some New Zealand chefs and they had really opened my eyes to the fact that as an export nation, which we are and should be, uh, they weren't really being able to access the stellar product that I was firing up into the US. And as a nation that's built, you know, equally on agribusiness as it is on tourism, one of the messages that we were telling our visitors to the country is that, you know, this is the best version of us. And I wasn't wholly convinced that that was the case for seafood. And being as deeply uh, committed to Aotearoa as I am, I thought, well, maybe I'll just keep that seafood here. And the New Zealand chefs can then have access to beautiful whole snapper or beautiful skin-on gurnard or all of the things that we fire off into the world 
um, I decided we would keep here and, and not have it be 48 hours to the market. You could literally have your fish from this fisherman within eight hours of it leaving the boat. And that, that was how it then unfolded for the decade that followed. It was very much a boat to kitchen model of supply where the chefs and then the customers could understand who caught their fish and how and why and what it was to be a responsible fisherman. Isn't that remarkable? Because I guess I'd always wondered if that idea of export quality was just marketing and was just kind of, you know, trying to get a bit of extra margin. But is that really the case, that all of the very best was uh, was just heading off before you gave it a, a high-value chain to restaurant? I think that you have to think about what makes the economy tick and what makes the economy tick is export in this nation because we are so small and the world invariably will pay infinitely more for our product than our domestic market might. And so I think there's both a place for um, small local artisan um, domestically created and domestically supplied food producers, and that gives us the beauty um, of being close to source and understanding what it is to have a direct relationship with your greengrocer or your butcher or your uh, cheesemaker. So that is very much a part of our story but equally so too are the bigger companies who are catching on such a scale and with uh, the degree of requisite value that it needs to go offshore. And sometimes that gives us the luxury of having our local producers. You know, it, 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 sets, um, it sets up our economy in a way that we enjoy the luxuries of employment and wealth generation as an economy that lets us spend that income with our local providers. So it's an and, and for me, I really, um, I, I could never subscribe to the idea that one has more value than the other because they're both part of the kaleidoscope of the New Zealand food story. So do a lot of our great um, and best products go offshore? Absolutely. Equally, you can find those gems here in New Zealand. And after 10 years of building up Yellow Brick Road, it's now part of the family of companies in Kono. Tell me about, tell me what Kono is and what your journey into that business was. Sure. So um, it's a it's an interesting uh, sort of a, a wiggly lion story through to Kono. But um, when I created Yellow Brick Road, I'd never created it for sale. I was very firmly of the mind that if you build something for sale, it can drive your behaviours in a way that you might not have intended. So I built Yellow Brick Road with the long term in mind. This was me. We were going to, um, you know, we were very small. In fact, we remained small the whole time. I think, you know, we were a startup for a decade. I'm not sure if you're supposed to be a startup for a decade, but we were. <laughs> um, so we built Yellow Brick Road. Um, and then after, you know, eight or nine years of doing it in the same way, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling to find scale for this business. How do I how do I wrap it into a space that where I can do all of the things that you read about, you know, work on the business, not in the business, and leave yourself space for um, clear thinking and strategy and so forth. And, you know, you try to do that, but at the same time, you know, you're delivering boxes of Gurnet on Valentine's Day to, to chefs <laughs> who are losing their mind. And, you know, <laughs> in that minute you think, like, this is just literally, what a joke, <laughs> working on, not in. Um, but but you've got to. So an opportunity presented itself when Connor asked me if I would um, both take on the role of CE and could they uh, and that they would uh, purchase Yellow Brick Road at the same time. 
that wasn't my first introduction to the business because I had been in and around Kono and also Wakatu, the owning entity, for um, a couple of years by that point. Wakatu, as an incorporation, is very invested in succession planning through the families who own Wakatu, and we have 4,000 owner families as a Māori incorporation. We are very invested in um, what we would call our owners or our owner families, and my own family is one of those. And so we have a whakapapa connection to Wakatu, and through that I was introduced to the associate director program. So for the last 20 years, Wakatu each year brings in a uh, young person and it um, that, that young person does one year on one of the sector boards and one year on the head board to understand what it is to, to participate in the governance conversations. So it's a big investment. It's a big, it's a great degree of trust um, to, to invite people into those conversations. But I did that 2012, 2013. And over the last several years, um, a number of those associate directors have taken up um, management roles, such as myself and Karenza Johnston, who's the CEO of Wakatu. Um, a number sit on the board. And so it's really starting to pay dividends now in that succession planning. It comes down to, to great leadership and great vision from, from the Wakatu board. So 2012, I came into that. Uh, early 2015, I was an independent director on Cornwall. And then by the end of that year, I was the CEO, which makes me sometimes feel a little bit like, I think it's um, Goldilocks. You know, you try all sorts of different, <laughs> you know, this one's too hot, this one's too cold, but the CEO of Cornwall kind of fits just right. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about the kind of basket of brands that you have and businesses within it, as it's a it's a really broad mix of food and beverage, but kind of linked by kind of quality provenance and um, then quite a bit of branding, which is something that uh, I really love when you see that people are adding kind of IP to primary production. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for noticing that, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Perfect. Job done. Um, So, look, Māori have always been orchardists and farmers and fishermen. That that is um, very much a part of our our fabric. And Kono really is a, a modern and commercial manifestation of that. So Kono literally really means a food basket and it's in a basket that we would weave and we would um, place into that Kono, that food basket, our, our best food products for our most esteemed guests. And over the years, since since creation, Wakatu was created in 1977, um, Wakatu found themselves through various means, acquisition and otherwise, with uh, water resources and, and land resources which were um, invested in horticulture. And in a, and a couple of other spheres of of primary industry, and in two thousand, the early probably two thousand and ten, started thinking about well, how do you bring that all together sensibly? And by two thousand and eleven, two thousand and twelve, Cornell was born. So brought together all of those disparate uh, and vertically integrated activities that we were involved in: kaimoana, horticulture, um, then wine as well, and they all came together and and formed this Cornell to which we keep looking for opportunities and products to add in where they make sense. But um, but, but that's where we find ourselves, a vertically integrated food and beverage business. And some of those businesses are household names here, and some are kind of, you know, globally um, uh, exporting things like the Kaimoana, the, the mussel farms. Um, t- talk us through a little bit about that idea of the, the producing things 
in those ways. So, for example, the muscle farms, um, and 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 also maybe the kind of the region, because we're talking about the the top of the South Island predominantly, aren't we? For your um, for for where the whenua is and where the the farming's done. We are so so Titoihu, which is the top of the South, is where we're located, and and we're there uh, as a result of legacy. So in the eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties, our Tupunua ancestors migrated from Kafia up in the North Island through to Northern Taranaki, then down into uh, the Kapiti Coast, Wellington, then across into the top of the South, and that's where they stayed. And um, Titoihu who refers to the area from Marlborough all the way through to Nelson, Golden Bay, and Tasman Bay, and and that's our Tūranga Waiwai. So that's where uh, ultimately um, the the 4,000 owner families now trace their uh, whakapapa back to those original landowners and te tauihu. So that's the kind of very special connection with place. And it's from that connection to place that we do everything. So as you say, we've we've got all of these products and we brand them. And I think the branding is a way for us to tell that story. And some of those brands are known here but we are predominantly an export company, so we get to tell and share those stories with people around the world. And that's a really um, special t- uh, opportunity. It's also a responsibility to get it right because we are not simply a commercial entity, albeit that we are a business and we're measured in the same way that all businesses are. Equally, we are driven by social imperatives and ideas of Fano and being good kaitiaki and and manakitanga and fanongatanga, all a lot of the things that you see play out within Māori businesses and ideas you see actually ideas you see play out in the last couple of months through COVID, I think can find their root or their basis in, in Māori values. But the idea of being good kaitiaki is very central to to Kono and our promise, if you will, is love for the land and respect for the sea. And that's um you know, for me, I, I think I would think of it in the way as it's like, almost like commerce with culture, if you had to put it in terms that people more easily understood, albeit that I think people understand sustainability and what it is to be a good custodian much more now than they ever did. And it's relatively inexcusable if you're not turning your mind to that space if you are operating within the primary industry. In fact, operating full stop, I'd say, because being a good kaitiaki is not just about place, it's about people as well. And what an amazing place to have in terms of being food producers uh, across those those areas, because you've got kind of like one of the only bits of New Zealand um, that hops grow well, uh, and, and the hops, and then of course the Marlborough wine region. Which uh, uh, t- tell me about your investments and the work that you do there, as I think lots of people would be familiar with some of your brands there, like Tohu. Yeah, we do. well, I hope they are. We hope everybody has Tohu <laughs> sprinkled all over the show. Um, yeah, Tohu is a really fascinating um, company, and, and the, it was created now about 22 years ago. And when it was created, it was a partnership between three Māori entities, and it was almost a virtual wine company. There was no winery. We didn't own any vineyards. Um, you know, we had a, a, a consultant winemaker, but it was born out of the idea that there would be a market for this product. So it started started virtually, uh, which I think was very progressive for 22 years ago and from, you know, from Māori entities who frankly had, you know, little experience in this game, but they saw an opportunity, which is um, drives a lot of the behaviour, <laughs> which is great, nimble, innovative behaviour that you see now. So the company formed... 
Uh, I, it's fair to say it was pretty globally hot, but locally not, which is, you know, it was branded very obviously Māori. It, it, it had, um, you know, very heavy Indigenous connotations in it. So I think that domestically people were, were a little like, what is that? <laughs> and internationally people were like, what is that? <laughs> so I always, you know, I always like in my time in the States when I came back to set Yellow Brick Road up, you know, I told people in the States, I'm going to set this business up, it's some seafood, it's going to be amazing. And in the States they were like, that's that's fantastic, that's great. Here's 50 people you should tell about it. And I came home and started talking about it and they were like, that's no good and here's 50 reasons why. Um, because I think that that moment has passed now and I think that um, – we move exponentially in terms of our, our thinking and the way that we view new ideas and innovative businesses. Uh, so at its time, Tohu was super innovative. It, it went along on its journey and um, Wakatu ended up being the sole partner or the sole owner of Tohu. And it's gone on to be award-winning. We have beautiful wines made in really considerate ways, a great team. Uh, some of our wines are made in, in Nelson, uh, and Whenua Matua, what about some of our ancestral lands there, and then and then the bulk of it is made over in the Awatere. So, you know, we're really, really proud of being able to do that, and I think what makes it a little different, you know, French talk about tewa, we talk about tūranga waiwai. So it's, mm. it's that real nexus of people and place and time that express themselves through the wines. If you love the spin-off, the best way to show it is to become part of the spin-off members. This is the fun that helps us keep free and accessible to all without a paywall. It also funds some of our most important and acclaimed journalism. Check it out through the spin-off. Wow, and that seems to be something that's so prevalent also in the general business model. It's always a fascination to me, kind of the emergence and growth of these iwi or whānau-based um, businesses, because so much capital is just amoral, and it doesn't care where it goes as long as it gets a good return. But all of the iwi groups are investing for the long term and only in Aotearoa and only in things that are going to be you know, good good into the future as well as businesses into the future. And yeah, like h- how does that change the way and the decisions that you that you make and how does it mould the kind of business and um, company that you, you create? Mm. I think that, well, I guess two things. The first is that I think that you do see some Māori organisations and corporations um, and obviously we have a proliferation of um, small to medium-sized Māori businesses. That makes up the bulk of, um, you know, Māori businesses is hanging out in that very entrepreneurial um, small to medium-sized space. But you're right, the iwi entities um, have particular weighting in New Zealand. I think you have some iwi and some iwi entities who are taking their time and putting their um, their funds into more passive investments. But the ones who are acting um, or who are actively investing and who are really involving themselves in, in the primary agency in particular are driven are driven intergenerationally, as you say. We, we, we tend to, to think to the long term. It's taken us a long time to get to this point. And we have a balance between acting conservatively but doing things that will progress us more rapidly. So it's a, it's an interesting place to play in. If I think about our organisation, a few years ago we started thinking about, you know, what it really was to think intergenerationally. 
and we created a plan called Te Pai Tawhiti, which is uh, a 500-year plan. It's a strategy which essentially tells us that, you know, what we do now has to be done with a view to preserving and enhancing our taonga for the benefit of present and future generations, which is another way of saying that, you know, you have to make good decisions so you are caring for your grandchildren's grandchildren and beyond, that we are here for a moment in time and there is a responsibility to to be good people, to be good kaitiaki, to think about um, being a good ancestor. So um, that was created over the course of a couple of years, lots of conversation, lots of listening, and we use it as our driver every single day. And then we've taken it to the point now of saying, well, how do you know? You know, how do you know if you're actually moving in this positive direction? And so we have uh, created intergenerational goals that we refer to as hoya ki te So, you know, paddling towards that distant horizon. There's five of them. And they have to be in complete sync in order to operate. In order for it to work and our ecosystem to work in a, in a positive, authentic manner, um, you know, Putia and Fano and um, Papa Whenua, our footprint, they all have to be working together. Ngā Kohihiko is another one of them, which is innovation and, you know, are we fit for this journey? So that's really exciting. What I love about that is that we're building business models that are, are authentic to us and therefore more easily understood and they will stick and they will do the test of time because they're based on ideas and values and concepts that are inherent to, to being Māori. And, it's, and, and, and our workforce, our team, um, they are not predominantly Māori, but everyone knows it and understands it and lives it because we don't, um, Māori don't own the concept of being good kaitiaki. As I said, we don't own necessarily those concepts we do own the words we do own the whakapapa of those those ideas um but the concept you know the value of being good people that should be something that's common to to most yeah um it's funny that you mentioned that because i was just about to ask from having watched the videos on the site of a bunch of your workers um how it obviously really is energizing and a lot of these concepts are really powerful and important and yeah what it must mean for building a culture you know with with many cultures of uh, people you know there seem to be quite a few um, uh, workers from overseas in Marlborough and the like and hearing all these different accents talking about these um, you know really really uh, in, indigenous kind of concepts uh, was really cool. It is. It's so rewarding and humbling. We have about thirty-five different nationalities in our in our seafood team, and in our horticulture team, we have our Tongan and our Tuvaluan family, and and to have all of that in your business makes it hyper diverse and really um, rewarding to be a part of. We have a huge Filipino community in Marlborough and they're beautiful people who really are uh, invaluable invaluable to what we do and how we do it. But, you know, I guess it's, I guess it's a slice of what New Zealand is and it's how you allow for that diversity to show itself. And uh, as I say, we, we have the, we're driven by Maori values and we express them in that way. And then what I imagine um, is that people take those and they find a connection with their own values. And that's something I'm a pretty strong proponent of is that you have to know what your own values are before you can incorporate them into your, 
into your workplace and your work life and you need to find a, a space and a place that aligns with your personal values in order for you to you know, enjoy being there and for it to be rewarding as we hope it is. And how important is it having this experience that you have, I mean, for so many years across both New Zealand Trade and Enterprise and Yellow Brick Road, being a proponent and champion for all of these individual brands and creating all these relationships with all these different uh, potential kind of users of the of the produce. Um, and now that's kind of the role that you have, uh, part of the role in being the CE there, uh, is, is, except just on a, a larger scale for all of your own um, basket of brands. That's great. I th- I um I love the the challenge of being across a day where you know one minute you are having a conversation about hops, and then the next you're um right into a plan and around learning and development for your team, and then in the afternoon you could be addressing what it is to um you know where your cider might be finding itself, and then you're into something else. So I love being able to do that. Um, it's almost that you're dancing across the top of the water. The only way that you can do that is if you have a really great team who are then focused on the the digging down and digging deep into their area of expertise. And we have, um, we have brilliant people who do that. And, you know, I think as a Māori organisation as well, we, we spend a lot of time, um, in, in collective thought, which is different to that group think that group think is, not a great place to find yourself in, but a collective thought where you can have, as Fano do, um, quite strong conversations about what you do and how you do it and how you proceed. Um, but you can then get to a place of collective agreement about how you do do that. So I always joke, like, you're never alone. You know, like, if you have a close family, you're never alone. And in a Fano business, you're never alone. And the upside of that is that um, you're never isolated. And you're never in a position where you are, you know, hung out to make a decision because you do that collectively. And that's, uh, that's um, really positive. And a lot of these concepts that you're putting into action and, you know, as a, a whānau-owned uh, group of businesses, uh, as the Wakatu uh, Incorporation, you know, these, these ideas of a slightly more long-term and, uh, you know, it's definitely capitalism because you know it's business but it's got a total collective approach because you care about the the next generation and all of the um the shareholders the 4000 families as well like what lessons are there in here and you know I loved seeing the article that you wrote on the spin off about what some of these lessons could be for the world post covid where everyone's saying hey maybe we've got an opportunity to reset some of the ways that we run things and not just chase growth and short-termism. And you've got a bunch of organisations uh, with experience doing exactly that. I think capitalism is an interesting um, topic and I think capitalism by its very nature focuses in on financial capital. And I think that it's it's not the only, nor is it, the most important form of capital that we can invest ourselves in. There are, you know, depending where your sphere of reading might lead you, there's five, seven, nine, ten different kinds of capital. Uh, but the ones that I find pretty interesting are environmental capital, you know, human capital, uh, intellectual, spiritual, cultural capital. Those are all incredibly valid and equally valid forms of capital to financial. And if you only ever focus on the financial, then your life, I imagine, would be... Um, both transactional 
and maybe shallow or light touch because it's just in isolation. I don't imagine it's very rewarding. And so if there was something that we could come out of COVID with, it would be the idea that there are other forms of capital. They're of equal value and merit. And we each access and value them in different ways. And that applies equally to knowledge sets. And, and I've been thinking a lot about how we allow for alternative forms of knowledge and knowledge sets. And if I think about Māori, so it's mātauranga Māori. So what, what is that? We make it very much a part of our business and how we undertake our business. Uh, I see a lot of movement in, in mainstream New Zealand or, or non-Māori businesses to, 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 you know, they're drawn to those ideas, they're drawn to those values, they're drawn to the heart that comes with mātauranga Māori. Um, but equally, you know, they have to form their own relationship to those ideas. So as a country, how do we take the trust that we have built amongst ourselves over the last two months? How do we take the trust that the world has, um, or at least the view that the world is starting to form or has formed of us over the last couple of months, that being that very trusted nation, um, how do we take that and use it sensibly and wisely? Because we don't, I hope, I hope we don't have another like occasion anytime soon, but I don't imagine that um, that opportunity will present itself again. So I think there's this, there's a little bit of clear air we find ourselves with where we can be honest about the fact that pre-COVID there was a lot of inequity within Aotearoa. And so if we prioritise that, we could actually deal with it really, really well. So, you know, we, we pretty much solved homelessness in the last couple of months. And that's, you know, that's not me trying to be glib, but there were real issues that presented themselves pre-COVID that did, we didn't seem to be able to manage that through COVID, we knocked right on the head. And so if we went back and thought, what are the things that are really um, uh, counter to that idea of being this trusted, secure, equitable, good nation, if we went below that and said, but what are the things that we're not in and we prioritise those as a matter of course, I think we could actually move the dial even further than we might have to this point. Um, and yeah, I, I know that these sorts of conversations have been had and I know that these ideas have been propagated in the past but what we find ourselves now is with some clear air and the power as government and consumers and companies to actually make those decisions. Yeah and if we're going to be putting ourselves and future generations into a whole bunch of debt why not do it in a way that improves the system rather than just tries to maintain it with all of its problems? Yeah, really. Like we are, we are creating our solution to the problem that presents itself right now will not be solved by this generation. It will be solved by the next generation. So we really need to apply ourselves as to how we equip them to do that. It's about it is genuinely, um, genuinely rather uh, applying that idea of intergenerational thinking, intergenerational leadership to say here is the problem, we're going to exacerbate this problem through our solution to it. So the real solution comes, uh, you know, next generation. So let's set them up. Let's really invest in them and let's really support them to be the solution providers. Yeah, let's, let's be good ancestors. 
I love it. It's such a great concept. Um, hey, and, and as a couple of things that we like to ask everyone uh, on the podcast, what advice do you, um, I mean, it's amazing to hear about the, the long-term approach by, um, yeah, by, by Wakatu and having that uh, director's program. What kind of advice do you give to people who are interested in getting involved uh, and, you, you know, um, like fast-tracking, getting involved in directorship and governance and thinking about those big questions from a young age and taking on those big roles uh, at a young age? I probably spend quite a lot of time talking young people out of governance. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not sure, you know. um, And the reason I do that is that governance is is um, an area laden with risk and laden with responsibility that whilst I think young people are entirely capable of doing that, my hope is that they um, go and get really busy in action and actually driving activity and operations before they apply themselves to the governance of that. Um, That said, I also think there is a real need for uh, young people in the governance space so they can lend diversity of perspective and ideas. So, you know, you can't have them both. Um, but I think that I wouldn't be in a hurry to race out and leap onto boards because it looks like a, you know, a great place to be. It's a challenging and it's a really tough place to be. And you need to come with some, um, with, the, with confidence and experience and, and some really uh, strong ideas about how to support those businesses. So um, it's just a, it's just thinking about the right time to do that. Uh, in terms of the big, I, the big, you know, taking on the big roles, like I think it's a, a, it's down to that confidence in self and understanding that you never have an, all the answers all the time. In fact, most of the time you don't. Um, you know, you need to have space to have fun with it. Like with Yellow Brick Road, I had so much fun. It was just the best. It was a lot of, um, a lot of doing, a lot of um, hustle, and that's something that I think that we try to introduce into into Cornwall. Is but it's more like hustle with heart as opposed to hustle, so you can actually just pay your next bill. Um, so you do it in a way where you want people to be nimble and excited about what they're doing, albeit that we're part of a, a pretty big organisation. So how to get into those is is networking a lot of the time who you know and you have to be open to being super uncomfortable when you're out about meeting um you know I want to say exchanging business cards but no one does that now so it's fine um but you know meeting new people and understanding what your value is because if you don't understand your value it's very difficult almost impossible to convey that to anyone else so I would spend time understanding what your value is and what your values are and then there will be a natural fit for you with organisations who display similar traits and characteristics. Oh, wow. And as a, as a final thought, what will success be for you? Or what, what do you see as success? I think, you know, I think that success changes every day for me. And it comes in teeny tiny packages and it comes in huge transformational uh, ways as well. And and they're both of equal value to me. So to be able to position Kono internationally with my team where you have 
you know, you have your wine served at the Barack Obama dinner. That's amazing. And that is um, a, a, a version of success. To be able to contribute muscles to Wakato Marae because you are working with them in and around their, their spat um, and the quota that they have for their spat, that's success as well. That's connecting iwi Māori with what is rightfully theirs. That's success as well. You know, having one of our team in, in the seafood factory attain accreditation in the area where they hadn't had it previously. It's all success. And I think that as long as you are operating in a very honest and authentic and way, and in a way that embodies servant leadership, then, you know, it's, it's hard to miss. Ah, that's so cool. Well, thank you so much for taking so much time to chat to us today. That's uh, the CEO of Kono, Rachel Tolane. Thank you so much. You are welcome. Thank you. Kia pai tora. Great to hear. Thank you so much, Tina Tiller, for producing. And thank you very much, everyone, for having us along in your ears. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.